Good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Patrick Milliken from the Poison Pen Bookstore here in Scottsdale, Arizona. And uh, thanks for tuning in to another of our virtual events. And I am delighted to have Katya Leaf with us today to talk about her amazing new book called Invisible Woman. And um, yeah, welcome, Katya. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here to talk about this. Yeah, um, there's so much to talk about in this case. Um, can you maybe just sort of set the stage for it? It's a book that kind of captures so much about what's been going on, in the, you know, for the last five or six years, mm -hmm. uh, maybe a little bit longer. And right. in the acknowledgments of the book, you you talk a little bit about all the different forces that led to the book's gestation. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk about that a little bit. Right. Well, you know, it's when the me too movement suddenly happened um it felt like permission in a way to write about these things that have been um burning in me for a long time and i think i think every woman and part of um the whole issue that that the that movement in times up sort of laid bare was that we hadn't been allowed to really talk about it it was um rude and unpleasant to talk about it um, even aggressive to talk about it. So all of a sudden we were talking about it and it was a great moment for people who had been fairly feeling somewhat suppressed. Um, and at the same, and I guess coming out of that, I saw a, um, I just happened upon a film retrospective. At, I, I live in Brooklyn and uh, BAM, Brooklyn Academy of Music was having a retrospective and I don't remember what it was called in my book it became lost and forgotten women filmmakers of the 80s and 90s and I don't remember what it was called in reality but in my mind that it was something like that and became that in the book and it felt so awful even though it was an acknowledgement and a saying hey let's let's look at these um women who used to have something going on and then we kind of forgot about them and we lost them um and that got me really going um, with this idea and I wanted to explore it and I wanted to write about it. Um, so then that's where my character Joni came from. I And I, and she just, as I thought about it and gestated on it, you know, she became a woman who um, was in her fifties and suddenly with this new clarity and this ability to kind of name things and and there were suddenly phrases shorthand phrases for things um she kind of turned around and looked into her past as if um the lens had been wiped clean and she saw it um differently and clearly and it was confusing and upsetting and shocking and i think that um i think for a lot of women who who are older um, as, as we came through the last, say, five years, you know, everyone's cheering and it's great, but what about all the choices and decisions I made in the past that were affected by the status quo? And I wanted to examine that. And that's where, that's where Joni came from. And, um, you know, Joni is, is an artist, you know, uh, and, um, a filmmaker and, yeah. So, I mean, the, the kind of the, the device that gets the, the story going is 
you know, this um, uh, Blue Pridgen is his name. Um, you know, he's this, what, what is he exactly? He's a, a movie producer? Or? He's like a mogul, like a Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein kind type, of guy. You know, yeah. stand in. Yeah, absolutely. A fat he's a cat. Hollywood mogul, a movie mogul. Right. right. And so, you know, all these different women have come forward. Uh, right. and, and, and so that's the, the kind of the impetus for Joni uh, to go back at 25 years into the past. Mm -hmm. And uh, she and this other really interesting woman, Val, uh, they they share this period of time together. And um, I don't know, maybe talk a little bit about about them and and that that incident, I guess. Sure. So when this news breaks, and in the novel, it happens in the first page. It really sparks the story. Um, Joni, and we're in Joni's head at that point, and um, Joni thinks about Val and what happened to Val and that this man had also raped Val 25 years earlier. And when they were young women in Hollywood making their way, Val as an actress, Joni as a um, filmmaker, and they were roommates and best friends, and they took a kind of a vow of secrecy. They would never speak of this. They wouldn't tell anyone, they wouldn't talk about it because it would um, it would ruin them. They felt it would, it, no one would believe them. They'd be kind of belittled and mocked and they'd be cast aside. And they just thought there's no point, we're not going to. And they promised each other that they'd keep quiet. So then forward 25 years, suddenly you don't need to keep, suddenly keeping quiet's not, it's, it, you don't have to, and maybe you don't want to anymore. And Joni felt very strongly um, that, you know, maybe Val would be comfortable coming forward. It had happened to Val. Um, so she starts trying to reach out to Val. She has to find her. They've lost touch with each other. Um, so she hunts her down and she finds her on Facebook under a married name. And at this point, they're both living on the East Coast in two different places, Joni in New York and Val in New Jersey. And she finds her and she, you know, messages her and she doesn't hear back. She's like, oh, God. And it really gnaws at her and days go by. And then we switch into Val's point of view and we start to get to know Val a little bit. And, you know, what's she's so she's gotten this message. She's heard from Joni and oh, boy, she does not want to to pull that veil back right. so she's reluctant and there's this kind of um tension between them that takes place in silence because they're not communicating until val decides to respond and then they start to communicate about it and joni pushes her this is your time right. you know you can talk about this now and it would also, you know, it'll help. It'll help all these other women. Don't you want to do this? And Val just doesn't. So, um, and what happens inside Joni is that um, she really, she just really, really struggles with that. They both struggle with it in different ways. Val hasn't told her husband. Joni's never spoken to her husband about it. Um and there's a lot that she that they both have to do um, at home, really, to talk about the people to the people closest 
to them if they're going to do anything with this. So there's a lot of um, that going on. Yeah. Right. And they, they both they both have kind of like these conversations with their spouses about it. Right. And um, and also, you know, there's a it's really interesting looking at both these women and um, sort of the choices that they've made. Uh, you know, when that incident occurred at this at this Hollywood party where Val was, you know, raped by two men, um, right. you know, that it seemed to me that that was kind of the incident that sort of, I don't know, it, it sort of in some ways stopped them in their tracks anyway. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like Val ultimately chose a very different path and, uh, you know, ultimately married and um you know, became a teacher and found another life that was very fulfilling for her, you know, mm -hmm. seemed very, quite happy actually uh, right. in her life and very protective of it, you know, mm -hmm. and, yes. so, and yeah. so this, all of this stuff is from her past that, you know, it, it's just inter really interesting. And it seemed very real that, you know, she, they both have different, very different ways of of dealing with this and what happened, and and you know Joni. Meanwhile, twenty five years later, she's looking back. You know, she had all this early promise, uh, early success as a filmmaker, right? right. You know, and and uh, you know produced two, right? Two really two. acclaimed. Two. Yes, yes. I was thinking a little bit of Allison Anders. <laughs> right. Yes. You know her. Um, I know of her. But you know, there. She was gas food and lodging, I think. Oh, they're really good. Yes, films I remember bad. that. Yeah. yeah, but that's the thing. There, you know, I Joni. It was a fictional, is a fictional character based on all these people, and there are men too. But I'm focusing on women, and I think more women in, in this category, who really got a good start and then suddenly just vanished. Mm. What happened to them? You know, where did they go? Um, yeah, so Joni in the story, while well, Val has gone off and really made different choices, and um, Joni is still in the world of, of film. And she's, um, because her husband grew to prominence as her career stalled and she became a mother, his career totally took off. And he has, like... Um, scandalous Lou Pridgen, the rapist, he he has also um, a mogul, uh, more in the television side of it. And um, so Joni's list of living in the world seeped in the world and seeped in this kind of um, male um, point of view, right? In that she lives more in her husband's world than she, he lives in hers. And they've just moved from California to New York when the story opens. So she's out of place, literally out of place. So she's, um, and I wanted her to be very uncomfortable at the beginning of the story. So I yanked her out of her home. She's in a brand new place. Her husband's got this fabulous success. And um, and and all of a sudden she's, her head is spinning and she's looking backward through this crystal clear lens. And it's not it's not going well for her. Right. Um, there's a sense that she kind of, um, you know, put aside her, her own career, we think temporarily, maybe at first, uh, you know, because she really wanted to raise a family and have, have children and all that. 
and then somehow it just kind of got swept up in right in things right? in 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 her case so um it was more that her career stalled at the same moment that she became a mother those two things conflated um and so it seems as if that motherhood kind of side sidelined her but actually she was already being sidelined because in the book i describe um, how her first film which was an independent film she just made it on her own and um her own voice her own vision and and it won awards it, it did great and then she got a big studio movie so she, then she was put behind a lot of money and um and, a, uh, and she made a big movie and there it, there was a lot of pressure to change because she was a feminist filmmaker right, right. and there was a lot of pressure for her to change the ending of that second movie to water it down and she worried that if she didn't she would lose her career so she did and then it wasn't a, such a great movie it was an okay movie but it wasn't a, a, a movie with her voice so she made a compromise she kind of buckled to pressure she which she wouldn't have had to but she did because of all and I go all these forces that are on um women and this is what I try to really examine is the um the quiet forces that kind of hold you down you that used to especially that were very very powerful and you you would think it you would feel it you wouldn't quite get it maybe you'd blame yourself for it it was conf a lot of women were very confused at that time about what was going on um and in her case, she made a bad choice based on um, kind of fear and insecurity that she would lose her career if she didn't go the way they wanted. And she she kind of did lose it because she lost her confidence, right? Mm -hmm. She lost her confidence. She didn't make the work that she would have made left to her own devices. So um, she became a mother at about the same time. So those two things conflated for her. In your mind, you know, her her longtime marriage is is, you know, coming apart. Right. Um, I mean, you established that very early on, um, and what a wonderfully uh, created sleaze bag. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hot. yeah, it's just such a douchebag. I mean, in so many ways, uh, and he, you know, but he's not he's not out of central casting though. I mean, he has. He has his own kind of interesting menace, I guess you could say. Um, when do you think she intuitively knew that it was a bad decision? Intuitively. I think the intuitive feeling. Was she fighting against it? You think that? Yeah, she was absolutely fighting against it. She didn't want, you know, she didn't want to know and she didn't even know that she didn't want to know. Right. She just wasn't there for her to know in her um, in her field of vision, right? Because this was her life. This yeah. was her husband and the father of her children. And um, I think she, she just, she didn't have a clue and she wasn't looking for any clues. And there was nothing obvious. There was nothing. It was very well buried, his true nature. 
um, or the things he had done in the past um, before he knew her. Um, and then as she begins to recognize that he's manipulating her and controlling her, she begins to actually see it. Um, and she, then, then that's when the intuition becomes articulated and she begins to, to get it more. And she sees what's going on with Val at the same time. And yeah. these things are just becoming, so the clarity that she had gained in, in hindsight, looking back, she's now getting for her present. She's right. she's thinking more clearly and she's seeing things that they're not great. They're yeah. hard. Yeah. Right. Um, I got to ask, I, um, I have a, a green one of these on my wall in the kitchen, this, uh, the kitty clock. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's so this, although it's not, doesn't have a lot of stage time. It seems to me that it has an important place in the book, this clock. Um, it, it really does mean something. Uh, am I stretching or, um, you know, it came out of nowhere. I just, it's, it's right there in the beginning. It's on the wall and I, it, I invoke it again later, right. but what it, what it does at the very, very beginning, what I wanted it to do. And I hope it does do is with its, you know, the shifting eyes and the shifting tail to sort of plunked on a kitchen wall. And she's a woman in a kitchen and there's this thing that's just sort of there. And it's a little bit sinister it's also um, retro <laughs> and it's, it was just meant to set a mood, to set a tone. Yeah. yeah. And I think actually, you know, I never told, I didn't say to a cover designer, put that on the cover. They just did it. And when I saw it, I was like, yes. Oh yeah. They chose that image from the book. And I was really happy about that. Yeah. Cause it seems like, you know, she, it, it's some kind of interesting, she, she looks at it at, particular moments throughout the book. Right. Um, it, very cool. She notices it. And it's because yeah. she senses it's noticing her in a way. Right. <laughs> Eyes are moving back and forth. Exactly. And it's there and it's just, ooh, yeah. Do you have one? I don't. I should though. You need to get one. I know. I've got to get one. I just saw one um, in the gift shop at the Museum of Modern Art and I was like, oh my God. And, you know, why didn't I buy it? I don't know. Well, you can... Uh, you can send a bill to Morgan Entrican. Okay. Right? Morgan, is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, so Patricia Heisman, uh, before we got started here live, you know, I was saying how much of a fellow fan I am of Patricia Highsmith. And um, her work uh, really does play an interesting role in this book. Um, you know, we get the, the sense that Joni feels a real artistic kinship with Highsmith throughout. And um, uh, talk about that a little bit. Okay. So I feel a kinship with P Patricia Highsmith as, as a crime writer. I know it's not unique to me. She's weird and fantastic for the people who love her. Um, they really love her. Some people maybe, I guess, don't. But um, so because I, at the time I was coming up with this idea, 
also was thinking a lot about Patricia Highsmith and had also decided to go back and read, you know, fill in my blank spots. I gave it to Joni. I was like, Joni's going to have this Patricia Highsmith obsession. Um, I had been through it once before and I was revisiting my Patricia Highsmith obsession. And um, so with Joni, um, the story is that when they were young in their 20s, Val had given her a set of Patricia Highsmith novels. And Joni had read some of them, gotten kind of obsessed with them, and and they had inspired her first film, the one that won awards and was successful. And um, and then she had gotten kind of burned out on reading them because it's intense. If you read a lot of them all at once, it's kind of intense. At some point, yeah. you just have to say, you know, I need you have a to break. Take, take a little break, yeah. A little break, you know. And um, so at the opening of the novel, she's. Um, and she's thinking about Val and this news is broken, stuff's happening, and she spots them on her shelf. And she pulls them out and she says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna catch up on these, the books that Val gave me that I never read. Some, you know, there were several that she had never actually read. Mm. So she sets about doing that. And she um as this her story with Val is unfolding, um, Joni is reading these novels and they're really getting into her head. Um, and as her marriage is starting to unravel, the uh, kind of malevolence that's in the voice of every Highsmith protagonist starts to seep into Joni's head. Right. And she starts to kind of um, weave it, it weave, starts to weave into her thinking and her imagination. She's also trying to, to write another screenplay. It's not going well. But as she's kind of opening up this creative process, trying to, what gets in her mind is actually the Highsmith voice. Yes. So it hijacks her imagination a little bit. And um, and she starts to kind of not really get clarity from it, but develop courage, a, a kind of misplaced courage, I would say, um, out of it. So... Right, right. I, you know, in, in my heart, I wanted to try to write a modern Highsmith. And I knew that that couldn't really be done. But I thought, I want, I just, I want to try to, and in the very first draft of this, I was really going for a voice that was, that really evoked her. And then through several other drafts, I I toned it down and I changed it because you just can't just, yeah. Well, there's, there's certain things about, um, yeah, there's, there's this quality of Highsmith that I guess it's hard to really articulate. Um, yes, but uh, I'm just trying to think. I, I hesitate to call Joni an unreliable narrator, but in some ways, she kind of <laughs> she is. elements of that. Yeah, you you kind she of tells you part of the story. And there's there's a certain surreality to some of the scenes, um, and uh, this really interesting side kind of episode where with this Wally character. Uh, mm -hmm. I really love that. Um, it was so interesting. Um, boy, yeah. what, what can you say about that? Oh, boy. Um, so basically, Wally, you know, she, she has, before the story opens, she had sent out her old videotapes of home movies, um, things she couldn't watch anymore. She didn't have the equipment anymore. And she had sent them out to become to be digitized so they, they could be online and she could have them. Um, and the 
outfit she chose um, turned out to be a really bad company run by these young guys, especially Wally, who um, they were just falling apart and the business closed. She couldn't get her footage back. She thought she had lost her all these memories, the home movies of her children and her family. And um, and she was just angry and she couldn't, you know, he was kind of ghosting her for a while and then he'd reach out and she'd, so he um, lived nearby her, near her, or his workspace was nearby her and she hunts him down. So she become, this becomes the first trigger and out, uh, an outlet for her, a, a sense of aggression, right? Yeah. Where the anger, instead of like, instead of sucking it back, she's just angry at him. Okay, she's going to be angry. She's going to be angry at this guy for messing up her family member movies, her home movies. So she hunts him down. And I I probably shouldn't say what she does to him when she No, no. And I No, but she but you know, she crosses a line and Highsmith is what goes through her mind in that scene. Highsmith becomes the permission slip. The right. thing she wants to to kind of, you know, try. So <laughs> So those the, the those forces of this kind of unleashed anger, uh, and the Highsmith voice, click together in that scene, and it unleashes a little something in her. Yeah. Well, have you read the, have you read uh, Ivy Picota's books? Do no. You know that writer. I know, but I have not read her. Well, she's really interesting. I you know I recommend her to your attention. Um, but her latest book deals with some of these themes, which is, you know, in our culture, uh, men, uh, they're, they're uh, I don't know, their violent impulses are accepted, you know, whereas women's are not, you yeah. know, and uh, her book, her latest novel really deals with that, you know, these violent, yeah. violent, and, and some of that seemed to come out in, uh, in, in Joni. Yes. Um, yes. You know, not yes. just this capable. I think. How do you put it? Not just the capability for violence, but the desire for it. Right. Know? So it becomes kind of a taboo, the, right? Right. It's a it's a shattering of a taboo. So she first there's the recognition of um, this urge to do some kind of violence um, and a fight with with it because you have to fight with it. Hopefully. Um, and then in that Wally scene, a sensation of wanting it also. And right. that's that's something that also came out of um, Highsmith in, in that her, you know, her protagonists, when they, and Ripley is a good, I think a good example. Um, you know, he's a, he seems like a nice guy on the outside. In some of the books, he lives in the south of France. He has a beautiful house, plays the harpsichord. He's this nice French wife. They have meals. We hear all about the meals in the garden and stuff. But then something goes wrong and he has to do something about it. And what's so chilling about it is that there's he, he, it doesn't really bother him. He just does it. And he's mastered this. He almost seems to enjoy it. There's no big giant relishing of it, but there, I think it's the mastery that he uh, enjoys. And so for Joni, 
um, it's it's recognizing this impulse and then in sort of alongside shame for it, feeling like um, it's something that maybe she could master. Maybe she could be good at this. Right. And then try not to think it, but it's a it's a battle. Yeah. And also she's been swallowing, you know, so much bullshit for 25 years, you know, and it's right. become so ingrained in her right. to not to cause conflict, you know, just to right. kind of take it. And well, yeah. And that's that's you know, I I think that's typical of most women because her daughter sees it. <laughs> Her daughter sees it. Her daughter is, of course, a younger generation. Your daughter can name it um, and talk and challenge her and, and talk about it. Um, and eventually Joni can too, eventually. I'm actually, I've written a second book that's a follow-up. And um, really? in that book, she looks at all this. She looks at, you know, what happened inside her and what is the meaning of it and how does she feel about it and, and other things. <laughs> right. Wow. Very cool. Um, let's see. Boy, there's so much to get into here. Um, maybe kind of let's stray for a few minutes and tell us a little bit about your, just about your career in general. I, I remember when the, your, you did two as Karen Ellis, yeah, yeah. right? And yeah. were those published by Mulholland? Mulholland, yes. Yeah, I remember yeah. those. I remember really, really liking yes. those books. Oh, thank you. Thank and that you. That was like four or five years ago, something like that. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. before the pandemic. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. well, I have, you know, I've been writing crime novels for probably uh, at least 20 years. And before, when I started, my first two published novels were small press literary novels. That's kind of where my heart was. And then when I veered to, um, I decided to, I wanted to try to write a suspense novel. I just wanted to do that. I had been, you know, I had always been writing and um, and suspense as an element of storytelling seemed interesting to me and a little bit unreachable. I wanted to understand it. So I decided I would, I would do it, you know, and then what did that mean? So I started to learn about it and to read um, and, and I wrote a novel and, um, and it, it, it was published and that was a, my first pseudonym. And that was a pseudonym I took because it happened, the sale of that book happened so sort of fast and furiously. There was a bidding war. I was, I didn't, I knew nothing about the mystery world. I didn't know what I was doing really. And my then agent suggested, um, you know, you could use a pseudonym, you can, because uh, that way you just see what happens. And I just kind of glommed onto a pseudonym. Um, and I was given contracts for one book after another. And four books later, I had four novels. And I was really learning on the job, I, I felt. And they were, you know, book a year, tight deadlines. My kids were little. <laughs> I was kind of crazy when I think back to it. Um, what was that pseudonym? It was Kate Pepper. Okay. Kate Pepper. So she did pretty well here. She did amazingly well in Germany. Um, really? Yes. And so I was told, I mean, I was hearing about it from people in Germany and I had no idea what was going on there, but yeah. So anyway, um, I wanted long story. I, um, 
wanted to, I wanted to change publishers. So part of that, when I got it, another publisher was that they were fine either way. If I used the pseudonym or dropped it, I decided to drop it because I wasn't that comfortable with the pseudonym. I personally, and I'm not an actress. I'm not, I didn't feel, I just didn't feel comfortable with it. So then I started publishing under my name, Katya Leaf. Um, and again, it was book after book after book after book. And I was like chucking along. And um, and then, you know, a similar kind of thing happened. I think I was feeling a bit burned out. I had, I felt I had, I was writing a lot of um, closer, more like procedurals and um, more from the police side of things. Mm -hmm. And I was starting to really crave writing about um, what went on before the crime was committed, you know, the lead up to the crime. And I wanted to get into the heads of the criminals and not write about police. So it was kind of a shift for me. So um, that's where Karen Ellis came in. <laughs> so that was kind of, and I, you know, the first one, A Map of the Dark, is does is police, yeah. is an investigator. Um, but I gave myself room to to make it more character driven. Um, and the powers of be that be around me felt that that was enough of a shift that a name shift was in order, and we just sort of went with it. Um, and the, those were those two books. And when that was all done, I really slammed on the brakes and said, okay. <laughs> I want to write, I really, I wanted to write about a woman. I want to write about her in a kind of, with taking a very stark look at her inner life. And um, although there is one small detective part in Invisible Woman, it's not going to be about that stuff. It's going to really go into her in a way that's more um, sociological almost, right? And and it and it and I was feeling that strongly, and at the same time, Me Too and Times Up happened, and that was permission. I really feel that before that, if I had um, written more more overtly on this subject, my guess is I probably would have been urged um, by my colleagues to to back off. Um, that was how I felt. Now maybe I was wrong, but that was how I felt. Mm. Um, maybe I just didn't feel confident enough, but, but so, th so this time I just said, you know, there was just no question of another pseudonym. I've had it, I'd had it with pseudonyms. Um, every, it was well understood and, um, that was it. I just wasn't going to do it anymore. I just felt like, you know, you get to a point in your life where at least for me, having published so many novels and written for so long, um, I want to do it my way. I want to write what I want to write. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm always flexible with revisions and all that. And I have, you know, but it has to have meaning. It has to um, have meaning as uh, on the level of the characters, the people, and also um, the literary qualities, the quality of the writing has to be, there has to be room for it to breathe. Um, it's important to me. So yeah, so that's where I am now. Now with with the two characters, um, two main characters, Joni and Val, um, is there, it, you get the sense that you sympathize and you em empathize with both of them. Um, is there one that you feel closer to? 
I probably feel closer to Joni only because I wrote more of her first. Val, I brought Val in. Val was not a voice in the um in the narrative. She did not have a narrative voice until a later draft. And then I pulled her in and then I wrote more and more of her. And as I did that, um I I related to her in a very different way. Um because my life, you know, I have a life that has the stability of vowels. And I wrote about it. I brought it in. Um, I also have a life that has similarities to Joni's in that I'm a cr creative person and I have a husband who's in the film business. So so Joni first, but then Val kind of came in and in my next, the next book, um, they're really given equal weight. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking, um in particular with the Highsmith books that you, you choose. In some ways, Joni, this might be a stretch too, but I was thinking in particular of Edith's diary, you know, which is just such a masterpiece. And um, it's one of these, yeah, uh, you get the sense that this, this woman is just caught in the wrong place and time. You know, it's the 19th, I think it's set in the 50s, isn't it? think so and, uh, and she is a she is an artist and she is a writer and um you know she's living this mundane uh 1950s leave it to beaver kind of world with its inherent darkness underneath you know right. that's that's the thing that's so interesting about the whole noir period to me oh yeah it's the norman rockwell facade right. and then the real story underneath exactly exactly you know? Yeah, and, and isn't it, if I remember correctly, with Edith's diary, isn't her father-in-law uh, uh, living with them uh, at, at the house? And I don't remember. Yeah, the old Is man. He, old I remember man this living husband, with the son. Um, oh yes, the old man. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and she's she's really poor Edith. She's sort of um, going mad. Going mad. She's put upon from every direction, and she has no recourse. And it all sort of turns inward. And um, yeah, yeah. You that think she, she got run off, run off to Greenwich Village or something like no. that? No, no I mean, yeah, I think so. available to her. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't available to her in her world, in her time, and also within herself as a person. I think very few people in reality back then did that. Right. And even, you know, now, but you don't have to now, so um yeah yeah I thought that was uh it was also um Highsmith rarely wrote from the perspective of a woman did you have you noticed that when you mentioned that in the book I'm like oh you're right yeah she writes mostly from male point of points of view um and it's pretty interesting and I, I I've been thinking you know a little about how what how, what kind of a writer she would be how she would do it today you know, if she were alive today, um, first of all, she'd probably get canceled really fast just for her really personality. Fast. Really? But um, yeah, so, um, but she, you know, she was a lesbian and she, I think she lived openly in her private world maybe, but publicly was not something she could ever, you know, open up about. And um, in her fiction, when she did write about it 
was in um, The Price of Salt. Right. Made movie was Carol. Um, right. They wouldn't publish it. That's you right. know, publisher, her publisher, I believe, wouldn't publish it. So they had to find another publisher and it was published under a pseudonym. Um, right. And that was off her big success with Strangers on a Train. Even So, so right. it was a time where she had to really hide herself. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me whatsoever that her protagonists were almost always men. I think that I can't say this definitively, and I would love to know. Um, I think a lot of women who are writers were would write with male protagonists because women were not considered um, heroic, certainly, or even interesting enough to carry a story. Um, and also, didn't you say somewhere that uh, Highsmith felt like she had been born into the wrong body? Right. Yeah, apparently, from reading her biography. Yeah. Um, and she she um she she kind of lived that way a little. I mean, she did some cross-dressing and um and stuff. And she, you know, she did it her own way. She 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 lived her life and she was, you know, she wrote what she wanted to write. I guess she seemed to really she let, went to the dark side. She was mean. She, you know, she smoked. She kind of retreated into this retreat yeah, herself yeah. towards the end yeah. of her life. Yeah, she yeah. Become very bitter and very bitter person. Yeah, yeah. And the bitterness seeps into the work too, but it's. Um, she liked cats, though, which I I appreciate. And snails. And snails. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very complicated person. Um, oh, yeah, I I don't know that I'd want to actually um, sit down with her. I mean, I would, but it might. I would. I would absolutely do it. Yeah. But it might be a bad experience. But I'd still do it. Right. Um, let's see here. Of her of her books, what are some of your favorites? Um, probably. Strangers on a Train and Edith's Diary and The Price of Salt. Um, those are the ones that pop out um, because The Price of Salt, because of the power of um, the, the characters. Mm. Um, the conflict and the suspense was embedded in them because there were these two women falling in love with each other. Um, and that at the time was explosive on its own. So you didn't need a lot else. And um, uh, Strangers on a Train, I just, the plot was just so good. You know, the plot, the way they meet and they make this, this plan, which is a terrible and awful plan, but then they end up carrying it out um and watching them go forward with it um and the desperation that they both experience and, and and digging themselves deeper and deeper into it um i just found it riveting um was she like 23 or something when she published yeah, she was really young when she wrote that yeah. really young i mean what uh, a genius really i know yeah it seemed like she and carson mccullers were kind of coming up Roughly the same time. Yeah, and, and yeah. Imagine listening to a dinner conversation with them. That would have been fascinating. That would be, 
that would be yeah. fun. They're both kind of like the darlings of the bohemian set right. for a little right. while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, boy, there was a, yeah, nobody wrote about uh, Twisted Obsession mm. like she did. Um, mm. We've read, you know, I, I run a discussion group here at the bookstore that's dedicated to like noir fiction and mm -hmm. and we've done a bunch of Highsmith over the years and one of the most disturbing ones have you ever read this sweet sickness have I read it I you know I don't know if I have read that one I have yeah. not I still haven't read them all because I have to go through I, a I final read. phase of finishing them I read most of them I don't think oh wait have I I may have I think I might have read that give me a give me a um it's point. about the guy who it's really about a stalker, about a guy who becomes right. dangerously obsessed with this woman. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's about a, a book about a stalker. Right. And his delusions. Right. I think I did read that. Yeah, I have to really reread it clearly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you also about teaching and about you teach at the new school, right? The new school. The new school, wow. which is, um, if you, you know, if you, you might, you don't, you're not in New York, so you probably don't know about it. It's a, it's oh, of course a, I do. Yeah, no, I oh, you do. I do. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, I've been teaching there for 30 years, which wow. blows my mind. Um, and I teach fiction writing workshops. Um, and I, you know, it's funny. It was never a life plan, but I, 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 I it's, it's the only job outside of writing that I've ever had that I've actually liked. Um, yeah, I, I teach the, you know, college students about fiction and um, it's, I, I eventually came to feel that I was taking a class with them mm. because the way we explore everything and uh, we workshop their work, it's very creative. Um, and yeah, it's it's great. I love it. Are these undergrads or are they graduate students? They are. Originally, it was a mix of undergrads and continuing continuing ed students. And that was kind of wonderful because you would have teenage college students mixed with adults of all ages. And it was a great, great dynamic. Um, eventually, maybe within the last, I don't know how many years, eight-ish or so years, the school has pulled away from that. And now it's just um, just college students. I see. In my program, yeah. So yeah, it's great. I love it. I love working with them. Does it kind of um, inform or not inform? But it, does it does it help your own work? I mean, do you get enthusiastic about it? Yeah, I do. I do because um, I mean, I'm really I'm always learning. I'm always learning, and or in a class, and even though I'm a teacher they bring their work in, it's their work. And um, it's work that I've never seen before. So there's always a lot to talk about. Um, and I have to stretch myself to talk about it. Um, because especially now that I'm teaching exclusively college students, most of them, you know, sometimes they're pretty experienced in writing, but sometimes they are not at all. So mm. there's always going to be a lot of having to kind of explain the um, kind of conceptual vocabulary of fiction writing to them, which means um, pointing it out and breaking it down in their own work. So um, so I can't be a lazy reader. 
when I read the workshop stories that come in. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the members of our discussion, my discussion group, um, he's been, he's passed away for quite a while ago now, but about 20 years ago, um, he was, I think he was probably in his seventies and he took a class from Dashiell Hammett at the new school. Really? Yeah, I'm almost positive it was at the new school. That makes sense. That and would ha make sense. Yeah, Hammett was teaching and he had these, because we're, we're reading, you know, the Maltese Falcon and stuff like that. And he's talking these wonderful anecdotes about Hammett, you know, I mean, that he was impeccably dressed all the time. And that's uh, amazing. That's cool. And I, I hope I'm, I hope I'm right about it being the new school. I want to say, yeah. I don't. It would not surprise me. The The thing that the new school does is its thing is to take working artists and bring them into the classroom. Right. So as opposed to, they have, um, you know, it's it's not a school made up of mostly full-time academics. Yeah. Um, not that a lot of these working artists wouldn't like a full-time academic job with all the benefits, but the, um, the model, is basically working artists in the classroom. And so it would make perfect sense for Dashiell Hammett to have been in the classroom there. Absolutely. Right. And it was it was quite a kind of a lefty hotbed, right? In the yeah. 50s and 60s. And yeah, and the school was really known as that for that at the time. A lot, a lot of really famous people have been there yeah. as teachers. It's it's amazing um, to realize for me. Um it's a cool place. Yeah. Yeah, next time I'm in New York, I'll have to go by and check it out. Yeah, and they have events of all kinds. Do they? Yep. Cool. Well, um, let's see here. We should probably wrap it up, but uh, I just wanted to say uh, congratulations on the publication of the book. It's really terrific and uh, will resonate with a lot of people. Thank you. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. Have you, um, have you sold the film rights? No, that? we're working on it. Wouldn't that be interesting? It would. It would be a challenge. Uh, to me, why? Why would it be a challenge? Uh, a challenge to adapt it properly. Oh, with... um, yes. Like it would depend on the filmmaker. Yeah. Really, what kind of movie came out of it? For sure. Yeah, yeah. it's because a very internal narrative. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you finished the follow up to it. That's. I finished the rough draft. Yeah, and okay. uh, even my editor hasn't seen it yet. No, really. So if he happens to be watching this, he's heard more about it than he's <laughs> before. Um, yeah, he'll get it soon. All right, Katya. Well, I have to run downstairs and quickly uh, change gears and talk to John Talton about his 1930s set Phoenix series, which is quite mm -hmm. wonderful. So, um, but it's been a real treat to talk with you. Thanks so much. Thank and you. Thanks everybody for watching. Sorry, I didn't get a chance to ask some of these questions, but um, there you have it. <laughs> Good night. Thanks Bye everybody. Bye. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.